0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Good afternoon. My name is Andrew Scobell, and I'm a distinguished fellow for China at the United States Institute of Peace. Thank you for joining us in this important conversation on Chinese mineral interests in Africa. For those of you unfamiliar with the Institute, the U.S. Institute of Peace is a national, nonpartisan, independent Institute founded by Congress and dedicated the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and indeed essential for U.S. and global security. The Institute pursues its mission by linking research, policy, training, analysis, and direct action to support those who are working to build a more peaceful and inclusive world. Today's event focuses on a topic that cuts across many themes that we work on here at the Institute, specifically China's political and economic interests around the world. The influence of Chinese quasi-party hyphen, military hyphen, state actors on human security and the agency of local populations and governments in shaping the outcomes. In absolute terms, Chinese mining investments in Africa lag well behind those of the biggest uh, Western companies like Anglo American and Rio Tinto. But standing behind China's nascent mining firms are its factories with a seemingly insatiable industrial appetite often importing African minerals extracted by US companies to make tech products for US consumers. These economic forces are powerful and often intersect with America's own political and corporate interests, forcing us to think critically about the role we can play in mitigating harmful effects. We are joined today by three leading experts on these issues, coming at them from a variety of of, uh, perspectives. We're extremely grateful to have them here today. Thank you for all of you who are joining us online and in person in the auditorium. Without further ado, I'd like to hand it over to my distinguished colleague uh, from the Africa Center, Tom Sheehy, to introduce the speakers. Tom.
2: Thank you, Andrew. Uh, My name's Tom Sheehy. I'm USIP's Africa Center, where we focus on building peace and security The issue of how African countries develop their critical resources is essential to building peace and stability. Uh, This isn't just an issue of economic development. It's not just an issue of geopolitical competition. Sadly, the history of Africa has all too many cases of natural resources being exploited and fueling conflict. We're seeing that, for example, today in the Cabo Delgado region of, of Mozambique. Our focus today is on China and its development uh, in the the African mining sector, and obviously they're they're dominant as as we'll hear. But we'll certainly discuss the role of the United States. Uh, As we know, there's been unprecedented attention paid by the U.S. over the last few years towards Africa's critical mineral uh, mineral sector. And the goal, obviously, is to have a mutually beneficial relationship uh, that develops these minerals in a way that works for African citizenry and also US interests. So we're very uh, privileged to have an excellent panel here today to discuss this topic of China's uh, critical mineral supply chains in Africa. It's my pleasure to introduce Brianna Boland. Uh, she's a research associate for the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies where she supports the program's research on party state governance and evolving political discourse in China. Prior to joining CSIS, Brianna worked as a political risk analyst at Denton's researching China's economic policy and shifting trends in U.S.-China relations for the firm's international clients. Brianna holds a BA in international studies with minors in economics in Chinese language from Fordham University. Eric Olander is the editor-in-chief and co-founder of the China Global South Project, an independent, nonpartisan, multimedia initiative dedicated to exploring China's engagement in Africa and throughout the developing world. Eric is a longtime China watcher with more than 25 years of journalism experience at many of the world's leading media companies including CNN, the BBC, and France 24. He received his undergraduate degree in East African History from the University of California at Berkeley, and holds a master's degree in Chinese Public Affairs from the University of Hong Kong. Lauren heiser risi is the Program Director of Environment, Environmental Change and Security Program at the Wilson Center where she develops transdisciplinary solutions to environmental and natural resource development and security challenges, as the managing editor of New Security B. Lauren holds an MA in Environmental Security and Peace from the University of Peace in Costa Rica. Lauren has an impressive list of publications to her name as do all our, our panelists. So thanks to all of you for sharing your experience. I'll ask each panelist to make opening remarks and we'll get to audience discussion. Uh, Eric, you're up.
3: Okay, thank you Tom, thank you USIP for being here. If we could get my PowerPoint on, what I'm gonna do today, just in very quick five or six minutes, is try and set the benchmark for some facts and to put some context to this because the discourse about Chinese mineral and mining activity in Washington oftentimes I think is distorted, uh, borderline bad, and oftentimes just wrong and particularly on the Hill, for those of you watching online, this is really meant for you. Um, Let's talk about kind of where the Chinese are. So in our group, we really don't like the word Africa, in part because Africa flattens this very large, diverse continent. When we're talking about the Chinese in Africa, uh, you can see the presence is quite wide, but it's not equally equally distributed. There's really five countries that dominate the Chinese mining presence in Africa. Uh, Guinea, which we're gonna talk about, Uh, Zambia, South Africa. South Africa is a very important case because it's not only a center of mining but it's also a logistics and transit hub for mining as well. So a lot of mining that comes out of South Africa for the Chinese is brought from other countries in Southern Africa as well. Zimbabwe is emerging now as a major player in lithium in particular. And there's a lot we can talk about in terms of processing, Zimbabwe's there. And then of course there's the big guy, the DR Congo. And we'll talk a lot about what they're doing. Also very important, we, just like we don't like the word Africa, the word China in Chinese is also problematic as well. There's China, which is, again, these are legal entities, these are large industrial, state-of-the-art mining activities, mining companies and mining processing facilities. So if you look at the Tenge Fukurume mine in, in the Congo, Again, one of the problems we have is that on the Hill, in particular in the discourse here, is when they say Congolese and cobalt, the words child mining always comes up. That is an absolute distortion of the reality. In part, what we're seeing in places like the Congo is the industrial mining activities by the Chinese are large, sophisticated, and very, very advanced. Also, they're state-owned oftentimes, not always, but they're state-backed in many respects, and they have lots of government and embassy support. Then throughout Africa, we also see a very large informal, a uh, Chinese mining sector. These are oftentimes Ill- illegal immigrants or they're in gray markets, um, they operate illegally, and they are an enormous headache for the Chinese embassies. So again, I think it's really important that when we distinguish between China and Chinese, state actors and non-state actors. Now this is the one that I think surprises the most, and, I'm I'm glad that this was mentioned in the beginning because normally this is not mentioned. The total mining output of all of Chinese mining output from Africa, this is 2018 data, so it's it's about 6.7%. The number now, people believe, is about 8%. Let me just repeat that. 8% 8% of Africa's mining output goes to all Chinese companies. That is about half the size of just one company, Anglo American. So we have a tendency sometimes to overinflate the importance of the Chinese in the African mining sector. The, Afri- the Chinese are very important in certain countries like Guinea, like the Democratic Republic of Congo and to some extent even in South Africa and Zimbabwe. But when we talk about Africa and we talk about China, again, that flattens a lot of it, but this is really, really important to understand the context with what we're talking about in terms of total Chinese output. The fact is that Glencore is almost the same size as what China does and all of the Chinese actors combined do. And we see this reflected in the trade data. So this is 2021, the numbers really haven't changed. That we're looking at about 71% of all Chinese, uh, of all African exports to China come from just five countries. A lot of that is made up of mining, and most of that comes from three countries in particular. So when I say there's a very distorted trade relationship, it's not a a very equal relationship. It's spread, it's not spread equally. So again, that's why China and Africa become really quite problematic. And so it requires a little bit more nuance than I think a lot of us are accustomed to when we're dissecting this, this debate. So we have just launched, and I hope you'll start to take a look at it, Uh, the first indexing of the entire cobalt supply chain in the Democratic Republic of Congo. This is launching next week. It's available in French right now. It'll be available in English. This is the address which you can go look at it right now. What we did is we actually just knocked on the door of the Congolese mining ministry and said, could you give us your data? And they went, sure. (laughs) And so we have five years of data uh, uh, from the Congolese mining industry that shows everything about what they're doing in cobalt and copper. Uh, this here shows you the activity of all of the, the mining entities that are present. That big giant blotch in the middle is the Tenke Fungurume mine. And that is about, if, I, if I'm correct, I think about 12% of the world's cobalt output just comes from that single mine. It is enormous. Um, I've talked to a number of U.S. government officials and they look back and they say one of the greatest strategic mistakes that they've made in the modern era was letting Freeport McMoran sell that to the Chinese to China Mali. So that was done in 2018. Uh, So China's dominance in the Congolese mining sector is in part facilitated by American companies. Um, Very interesting that the data starts to show is that we talk about the Chinese and Congo as if the Chinese are the largest, most dominant player. Turns out that Glencore is consistently the largest exporter, far more than the Chinese are. Now when you add up all the Chinese entities, that is the big state-owned entities like what Means is doing together with the private entities like what China is doing, combined with all the middlemen and all the small little informal ones, then the Chinese output is larger than anybody else but as an individual entity, Glencore is the largest from Switzerland. So again, this is really important because this type of distinction is not made in a lot of the discussions about the Congo in specific and the mining. Very quickly, the other part that I think will be of interest to this audience in particular is we hear a lot about de-risking and decoupling uh, China from the global supply chain. Uh, The data, we have the data of where all the, uh, the cobalt is going all the middlemen who are doing it, and what you're gonna find is it's all been put into a blender and mixed up together. There is no way to separate the Chinese from the cobalt supply chain coming out of the Congo. It's just impossible. Samsung, we've we've tracked uh, Trafigura, Samsung, and even uh, some of the the joint ventures. It's all mixed up together. It's Chinese truckers, it's Chinese middlemen, it's Chinese uh, shipping companies, it's it's maybe a joint venture on Ivanhoe. Uh, the Canadians who are doing it. And so there's this fantasy that I hear a lot here that we're going to somehow create a cobalt supply chain that is independent of the Chinese. That will not happen in the Democratic Republic of Congo. You can see this in our data, which shows exactly how integrated and mixed up it is. Um, the last point that I'll make here is just, these are the supply chains. This is very interesting. So uh, the Port of Lubito is the dream of the United States to make it the new Durban. Right now there are basically three ports of exit for most of the cobalt that's coming out. And this is gonna be the focus for the US government is now how to build new supply chains that A, get away from the Port of Durban. The Port of Durban is shut down last year three times due to force majeure, climate change issues, social unrest. The port of Berra, the ports of Dar es Salaam, and, and increasingly Lobito. The United States is focusing a lot of effort on developing the Benguela corridor and the Lobito corridor in order to use that as a way to reduce dependence on Durban. The mining companies want to, and the Chinese as well, want to reduce the, uh, the, uh, the, the emphasis on Durban. And Volvis Bay in Namibia is another one that's all fighting for a share of the copper cobalts. Uh, supply that's coming out of the Southern DRC and Southern Zambia. Um, So we have a lot more information available on our site. Um, I wanna give all the credit for the data to our Francophone Africa editor, Jeronima. He's a resource that uh, is fantastic on this and uh, I'll leave it there. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Brianna?
4: Yeah, thank you, Eric, for all that context. Um, I've also always enjoyed reading your stuff no, and good. learning about China and Africa and do that, um, although I guess you don't like just exactly that term. Uh, so for my part in the panel, I want to talk a bit about uh, our recently concluded CSIS project, um, CCP Inc., which looked at how an ecosystem of Chinese state and commercial actors um, worked together in different international contexts and kind of get into the details of how that happened on the ground. And kind of picking up on some of Eric's points, uh, one of, some of the main takeaways is that there's a lot of complexity in how these things work. There's a lot of different types of Chinese actors, not even getting into the independent non-linked uh, that you were talking about in the Congo. There's private companies, state-owned companies, uh, different types of state-linked banks, um, diplomatic actors. Uh, and they operate differently in different industrial contexts. Um, But what is a kind of clear takeaway from our project um, is that there's a very different sort of supportive ecosystem that Chinese companies often operate in that's really different than what you see for Western companies. So as we talk about the United States trying to compete with China in certain of these uh, contexts, it's important to kind of understand how that works um, and how that does and sometimes does not serve China's national interests um, or these companies' commercial interests. Um, So one of our project case studies looked at Guinea, uh, which, as Eric mentioned, is very important for China in terms of uh, mainly bauxite and also emerging iron ore, um, which are the two critical inputs for making aluminum and steel. Um, And our case study looked specifically at uh, those two industries and focused in on this one entity called the SMB-winning consortium which was a consortium of Chinese and Chinese-linked organizations or, uh, companies, as well as some international companies. Um, and it became a very important player in uh, Guinea's bauxite sector. Um, and we saw at play like several elements of state support that helped to facilitate that and to support SMB winning as well as other Chinese companies in the sector, which included you know, financing, diplomatic support. Um, but one of the really key takeaways that we found from that was big benefit of this ecosystem was also the sort of networked effects of having other Chinese companies, not just in mining exactly, but really in transportation and logistics, and having those uh, connections between companies support uh, everyone's projects. So in the case of Bauxite, there was uh, a key part of the success of that expansion was the ability to tap several Chinese state-owned enterprises to build a huge railway, as well as partner with the Chinese company to actually ship the bauxite to China. Um, and then this became even clearer when we moved to... So first, SMB winning this consortium gained a really significant stake in um, Guinea's bauxite sector and then looked to iron ore uh, at this um, mine in completely the other side of Guinea called Simendo, um which is a, has a huge uh, supply of um, iron ore but is in a really remote area that's not as well connected to the rest of the country's infrastructure. Um, And so when SMB Winning did win a stake in Simondo, actually beat out a competitor, uh, largely according to industry reporting on the fact that it could promise to build rail and port infrastructure. And then we see as this has progressed, it's once again uh, become a situation where Chinese SOEs are able to help with building that infrastructure. Um, So that's just one example of how Looking at this case of you know, what is China's footprint in Africa's critical mineral supply chain, you get down to the details. There's a lot of diverse actors involved, um, and sometimes the strengths that the Chinese ecosystem can bring to bear um, are not always just about the mining companies, but also about the other companies that are involved. Um, and kind of the last point on why it's important to look at these diverse different actors is that it's very important to kind of parse out what interests are at play in driving these um, projects forward. And from our, our project focused a lot on how does China sort of transmit a policy goal down to the actors on the ground and how does it get um, those actors and those different companies to sort of fall in line with the national interest. Um, and so through these financing uh, mechanisms and through these different relationships and state-owned enterprises, there's a lot of ways to incentivize projects that are in sort of China's national interest. Um, but at the same time, what we consistently saw across a lot of different international contexts as well as Guinea is that this is really a core a, core, a commercial in, uh, enterprise. And so as we're thinking about how to sort of, you know, if the US think about how to compete, and also especially when we're thinking about human security implications of these different projects proceeding, uh, it's really important to kind of center that commercial aspect. Um, even when we're talking about divisions between U.S. versus Chinese companies.
2: Thank you, Brianna. And, and I think your focus on Guinea and Eric's focus on DRC really makes the point that every country is different. It's very important to look at the Chinese presence is is gonna differ quite, uh, quite dramatically. There's no Africa, as you say. Lauren?
0: Yeah, but I'm going to blow back out. (laughs) Um, I want to thank USIP for hosting this discussion today. And Tom, I think, you know, you wrote a recent article on critical minerals and Africa's future, and I thought that it really did a nice job of laying out the complexity of the issue. And so welcome the opportunity today to unpack some of that complexity with my fellow panelists. Um, But I want to start with a couple of key points. I think there's been a lot of renewed attention to... Mining activities in Africa, what China's role is. Um, and I think while the focus is on, uh, of today's discussion, is on China in Africa, we need to be really clear eyed about the legacy of resource extraction. It's not just Chinese companies who have a bad record of environmental and, and social and human rights abuses, uh, especially when you're talking about African countries where colonial powers and transnational mining companies have a a sort of long legacy of wreaking havoc in the 19th and 20th centuries. So where social and environmental safeguards aren't in place, extractive industries have historically extracted a a high price on local communities. And so regardless of the urgency of the climate crisis and the importance of these minerals to power a clean energy future, this is a point that cannot and should not be ignored in any discussion. Uh, A second point I wanted to underscore is one that both Eric and Brianna made, which is we can't speak about China as this monolithic entity, and that's, I think, um, it serves some purpose here in D.C. um, that we need to be clear-eyed about as well. That being said, China does, I think, have a strong presence in Africa. And actually, I have, some, I have like follow-up questions. <laughs> um, and I, hopefully we'll have some time in the discussion because, um, Eric, some of the points you made were really interesting to me. Um, but I've been asked to speak about the human security impacts. Uh, and so I'm gonna focus on three areas of primary concern. One is the labor and human rights abuses, one is the environmental impacts, and third is governance impacts. So let's start with the labor and human rights abuses. Um, Eric, you mentioned child labor in mining, and you know in the DRC there are I think more than forty thousand children working in artisanal cobalt, lithium, and rare earth element mining, um, and Chinese presence has only exacerbated that issue. Um, there was a, a congressional hearing in 2022 and a prominent Congolese civil rights attorney pointed to the fact that when it comes to artisanal mining oftentimes it's uh, Congolese miners who own the mines in name only and that it's actually the Chinese companies who are the actual owners and operators. And so I, that's one thing that I'd like to come back to and see if there's transparency there and if there's, you know, if that is understood and, and accounted for. Um, you know, Children are working seven days a week over 12 hours a day. They're exposed to all sorts of, um, of uh, injuries and disease and long-term impacts, not to mention the fact that they're not in school, right? Um, environmental degradation is another major area of concern. Uh, and, you know, look, by, by its very definition, mining is going to impact the environment, right? Um, but there has been progress in technologies and there are better environmental safeguards in place, uh, but these, uh, but oftentimes we're finding that Chinese-owned entities aren't carrying out adequate environmental impact assessments um, or upholding those safeguards. So we see significant issues like deforestation and habitat destruction as forests are cleared to make way for mining infrastructure. There are concerns uh, with with water contamination and improper handling of mine tailings and wastewater, can mean release of toxic substances into rivers and streams that local communities are dependent on, right, for their for their livelihoods, for their health and well-being. Mining activities can also lead to soil erosion and degradation and reduced agricultural productivity for surrounding areas. Lacking pollution control measures, air pollution and dust emissions, including fine particulate matter, can have adverse effects on community health and the surrounding environment as well. Um, And these impacts often outlive the mine itself. In Central African Republic, for example, Amnesty International reported that in the wake of four uh, Chinese gold mining companies departing in 2020, seven people died at the abandoned mining sites and the Uham River, a source of food and water for the local community was dangerously polluted with mercury due to mining related contamination. So let's look now at the context of governance and the impacts of Chinese mining investments. In many of the places, And I'm sorry, because I fully agree that we cannot talk about 54 countries in Africa as one, and even within those countries, (laughs) there's going to be a lot of diversity, right? Um, So uh, Apologies in advance for sort of speaking at this 30,000 foot level. But in many of the places where these critical minerals are found, governments struggle with weak institutions, with corruption, with ongoing conflict dynamics, which complicate their ability to ensure that mining operations are benefiting local communities and that they are following existing legislation. Chinese investors and operators have been heavily criticized for inadequate investment in local development and for undermining local employment. Research published by the German Institute of Global and Area Studies found that while non-Chinese mining operations are associated with higher employment rates in surrounding areas, proximity to Chinese-controlled mines was not shown to lower unemployment risk. Many of the communities where these resources are located lack access to essential health services, to education, to employment. The DRC, where mining sector investments and exports are key uh, drivers of growth, is ranked among the top five poorest countries in the world. 70% of that country's population is living below the international poverty line. There's a long history of conflict and instability and an ongoing humanitarian crisis in that country. 2019 was the country's first peaceful transition of power after 62 years of independence. There's been progress but insecurity does persist in some parts of the country and that has an impact on their ability to ensure that these mining operations are um, enforcing legislation and protecting communities. I, you know, uh, all of our panels, I think, have sort of mentioned this and, or written about it. Um, China has a multi-year decade head start on the U.S. when it comes to its presence in Africa on critical minerals, and the U.S. is playing catch-up. We hosted John Podesta at the Wilson Center recently, and in, in response to a question about working with mineral-producing countries. He said that the first thing that we need to do is show up, right? We just, we, <laughs> we need to start by showing up. So, you know, I'd like to talk about where there are opportunities to show up and do better. Um, but starting with the context in which these dynamics are playing out. So I'm gonna go even like maybe to the 50,000 foot <laughs> perspective. Uh, more and more there is a recognition that climate change is shaping our future, but population trends are also changing. Populations are more mobile than ever. They're more urbanized than ever. And, and they're characterized by aging in some parts of the world and disproportionate youth in other parts. As the renewable energy transition shifts where investments and trade are happening, it's important to remember that how we prepare for shifting population trends will determine how sustainable, equitable, peaceful, and prosperous our future is. And many of you likely read a headline or two in the fall about the global population reaching 8 billion. That's nearly. Double it was uh, what it was when I was born, not so long ago in 1980. But over the last several decades, population trends have shifted. And today, Africa is the last remaining region with a rapidly growing population. It's also the most rapidly urbanizing part of the world and the least energy consuming region per capita. And it's sitting on the front lines of climate change. In a forthcoming paper for the Wilson Center authors Jack Goldstone and John May write that between 2020 and 2040 the world's population of 15 to 49 year olds will increase by 428 million. Of that 420 million will be African. African youth will account for 98% of all the net labor force growth around the world. That's astounding. Gladstone and May argue that through investments in education and by providing African countries with the financing and technology to achieve clean development, Africa's youth could transform the global economy. So there's an opportunity through investments in the mining sector, among others, to realize co-benefits in employment and revenue generation in infrastructure, education, technology transfer, peace and security. Take for instance the fact that the minerals needed for the renewable energy transition are mined in 70 countries where our own US Agency for International Development has a presence. There's an opportunity for the US to show up, to leverage tools across agencies, to partner with private industry, with country leaders, and with civil society to meet the demands and ensure benefits are felt at the local level. I wanna say finally that the us and china have a shared interest in a reliable and affordable global supply of critical minerals and we should continue to look for ways to cooperate with china to raise global standards um, like the point that eric made we're, we're not going to be able to separate ourselves out this is something that we're going to need to do together in some fashion on there thank you
2: thank you lauren um, eric uh, l- let's talk a little bit more about drc democratic mm. republic of congo we had President Cheshire Kennedy make a trip to Beijing recently, and uh, uh, he was feted and the red carpet treatment. Uh, China obviously has an interest, and what we're seeing is a dynamic where Congo is pushing back on some of the terms of the concessions, the uh, the deals that have been struck with China years ago, and and really throughout the continent, we're starting to see more pushback against China, whether it be in the area of of mining or debt, uh, for example, in Zambia. And so, can you just briefly describe that dynamic of of the push and pull? And in Brianna, in your research, you've looked at Guinea, and uh, there were similar situations where the Chinese concessions were renegotiated, or at least uh, the uh, national governments are, are looking for better deals from from China. How does that play
3: out? And how should U.S. policymakers think about that? You want to go, uh, Eric? Okay. Uh, So we'll talk a little bit about the politics of the DRC. I'm a little bit of an outlier in this space and I caused a little bit of a uproar a couple weeks ago when I wrote a column that said, Felix Cesicati went to China and was a total waste of time. And boy, that just went completely boom in the Congolese Twitter space. Um, So the dynamics here are, Uh, be very clear that Chesa and Nicholas Kazadi, the finance minister, have made it very clear that they are not targeting the Chinese specifically. Let's be abundantly clear that it was Freeport McMoran that understated the reserves in the TFM mine prior to the Chinese buying it over. So this is not a problem, the corruption is not a problem unique to the Chinese. And I think that is overlooked, that we are absolutely complicit in that as well. And the the Congolese mining sector is a dirty, dirty space. Everybody's hands are dirty in this space. So it is disingenuous to simply isolate the Chinese and say that they are different. Now, we are seven months now before an election. Chessicati goes to Beijing. Uh, He is feted. he is given the the full red carpet treatment on Chang'an Avenue and at Tiananmen Square in the Great Hall of the People. And he got nothing more than a pat on the back and a thank you for coming. Meanwhile, President Castro from Honduras came uh, a week later. She left with billions stuffed in her pocket. The economy minister of Argentina, not even the head of state, went, he came back with something like $12 billion worth of incentives and investments and everything else like that. Why? Because at the end of the day, the Chinese in my view, and again, our team is a little bit of an outlier on this, look at Chesa and say, you know what? You messed with our money. You blocked up a billion and a half dollars of cobalt. You've been very close to Mike Hammer, the US ambassador. Uh, Chessicati came into power in part because of the consent of the United States uh, government, which by the way, for all the wonderful talk about democracy and a and good clean elections, that election was not a clean election by any measure, and the United States very quickly came in and said, we like Chessicati. So the Chinese have always been a little bit standoffish. So imagine, Seven months before an election, Chessicati goes in the hope of trying to get something to show that he has delivered on his promise that he's going to get some equality in these contracts. And the Chinese probably said, I have no inside knowledge on this, you know what, we're gonna see what happens. We're gonna see what happens in seven months if you're still around. And at the same time, by the way, Ambassador Zhu Jing last year uh, is high profile photographs of him and Moses Katumbi, the opposition leader out in in Katanga beautiful all-day thing where Moses is taking him around to his plantations and to his farms and everything like that to send a message both to Jessica Katie and To some of the folks in this room That says the Chinese say we have options and we're prepared to exercise those options So the Chinese remember have been playing the game in the Congo for 20 years now They're good at it. They're very good at it. They know how to play the politics. They know how to play the mining game And so the dynamics between the Chinese, CMOC, China Mali, SICO means CNMC, Zhejin, they've got people who have been there for 15 years who know how to play this game in one of the most difficult parts of the world to do business. So when we talk about that we're going to compete with the Chinese in the DRC, I ask you how many people do we have who've got 20 years of experience working in the mining sector in one of the most dangerous, volatile, unstable places in the world? So the politics are in motion right now. Everybody's waiting for the election to take place. Next year, once the election is settled, I think we'll see a shift. Either the Chinese will then double down on Chessicati and say, great, you're our guy, or they'll have a new president, whether it's Katumbi or somebody else, and they'll probably go with that as well.
2: Thank you. Um, Brianna, you've looked at uh, Guinea where, where we have similar Chinese dominance, much like in Congo and cobalt and, and iron ore and. and uh, and you describe the, the ecosystem that they bring. They bring financing. They bring infrastructure. They bring diplomatic support. They bring a whole, whole package. And the U.S. in the last couple of years has been really trying to up up its game. I, actually, the, the administration uses that language about upping the game. And we have the Development Finance Corporation. We have the XM Bank. We have the Trade and Development Agency. Uh, do you, how do you look at this do you do you think those tools are are going to get us into the game do you think there there's enough there to be competitive in, in guinea or, or congo I, I think eric's made his point about the congo but uh, how do you see the the uh, u.s effort
4: um yeah well speaking to guinea i'll just add on a bit about the dynamics what eric was saying i think it's really telling of how different the contexts are of the Relationship between the Guinea, like Guinea's government, trying to potentially renegotiate things, just looks very different. And you know, you've had a lot of, uh, had quite the last three years in Guinea with a coup d'état, and then um, some big moves of the new military government trying to renegotiate things in iron ore. Um, so there's, it's also like a very uh, different dynamic based on local politics. Um, in terms of the U.S. Of trying to build out its own, say, ecosystem for supporting these, Um, I think it's the sort of short answer would be uh, it's not very comparable. Um, It's not on the same scale. Um, The kind of longer answer might be that the comparing to China has maybe pretty, sometimes pretty limited utility in that it's just going to look very differently um, how the U.S. is trying to build out its own competitive uh, infrastructure. So. and by infrastructure I mean sort of this uh, business ecosystem. And one of the real strengths can be that, you know, we're not trying to replicate China's system of very close relations to its companies. You know, we're not a state capitalist uh, country. So it's it's going to be a different sort of format. Um, The types of investments that are being made now by like the uh, DFC are really not on a scale of what we've seen from China in the past. Um, but I think it will also be interesting to see how China's own investment flows are changing. Um, you have seen a real drop-off on investment since the pandemic and a lot of signals that China is also changing the way that it is approaching lending and so on to these types of big projects. Um, so it's not just that the U.S. is changing and ramping up, uh, as you say, our strategy. China is also changing, so there's a lot of um, converging dynamics there. Uh, the other thing I would just add in is that What looks very different from china is that there is a deliberate effort to kind of center partnership in u.s strategy on expanding this kind of uh, critical mineral ecosystems you've got like the mineral security partnership and much more efforts to work with partner countries which um, you don't see in the same case with china Um, so that will play out very differently as well
2: great Um, Lauren you had mentioned artisanal mining and and that's very different from the commercial gray or commercial scale mine that we see in DRC for example what what are the environmental considerations that we should make when when it comes to artisanal mining
0: yeah I mean I think they're they're you know the um, similar to what I remarks that I made previously is thinking about sort of the impacts on on land and deforestation on the sort of legacy well the legacy of mining and then after the mine has closed on the, the water, um, water availability and the cleanliness of the water um, on ecosystems. I think one of the interesting things about some of the pushback we're seeing from African civil society is this recognition that it's not, you can't protect the community without protecting the environment, right? And so this recognition that these are not two sort of different fights. This is one of the same fight and one uh, sort of um, necessary push back uh, to minds that are not upholding these safeguards. And so I think that's an important piece of this equation, is, is it's not a conservation issue, right? And it's not a community development issue. It's like an all of society <laughs> issue. And so being able to, to sort of work across the scales of decision making, it's, as you think about the um, civil society responses that we're seeing, they're, they're from the grassroots up all the way to the sort of international, right? And they're leveraging uh, international treaties and norms are leveraging national courts and they're, they're leveraging grassroots ability to document projects, to protest, to come out in force, right? And so, and that's, that's gonna be important in making sure that as these mining projects do take hold, that they're done in a way that benefits uh, the local community and meets those, those country and international needs.
2: Great. I think now we can go to the audience, perhaps, if we have any questions out there. There, we we have a mic if you could just hold on for 30 seconds. I think maybe in the meantime we have a a question from uh, Zoom from our webinar. Uh, How much is China's investment in Western mines in Africa motivated by wanting access
3: to Western mining technology? what are some of the uh, repercussions? Does
2: anyone have any thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I I mean I don't see any evidence that the Chinese are looking for Western mining technology because Chinese mining technology is very advanced and very sophisticated. So, and also they're not investing in Western mines, they're acquiring Western mines and that is not the same as taking the technology. So uh, I don't think that's an issue.
2: Okay. So hi, thank you very much. Uh, My name is Kent Brokenshire, I'm State Department Senior Fellow at USIP, and this uh, question is for Eric. Okay. However, I welcome any other answers as well. The question is, what, uh, what role does, does the mining of strategic minerals have in the conflict in Eastern DRC? How much of that conflict is driven by economic reasons and by mining?
3: Uh, my understanding, I mean, the Eastern DRC is not a major mining zone for cobalt. Uh, which is the main, or lithium. So that conflict, it pre-existed a lot of the, the, the drive for cobalt and lithium. And there's only a little bit of lithium mining going on in the Congo, but it's gonna be more. Um, so those, are, I think, are two separate issues. The issues of, you know, again, this Eastern DRC in South Kivu, North Kivu province, and Ituri province. Um, are vastly more complicated than the mining. Mining is a part of it, but a lot of it is informal mines. A lot of it is much more smaller scale. It's not these industrial mines that we're seeing in Lualaba province, in Katanga province. So I think those are generally separate issues. You also have in the Eastern DRC this question of all the other international actors, Uganda, Rwanda, uh, all the UN is all there. So those are two, I think, separate issues, the strategic minerals and the Eastern DRC and the fighting that's going on.
5: Please, sir. Hi, Hi. good afternoon. My name is Nee Simmons. I'm, at, uh, I'm a non-resident senior fellow at the Land Council and Center for Global Development. Um, I think one of the things that I, I hear quite a bit about is, um, first of all, I'm Ghanaian-American. Both my parents are from Ghana. I don't hear much about supporting Africa's um, rise when it comes to um, economic development, value addition. I think if you talk to, and I wish there was somebody from the diaspora or African on the panel, I think that was a mistake. But I think one of the things that we as Africans, Africans in diaspora are asking ourselves is, well, as we get to 2.5 billion by 2. uh, 2050. How come there isn't a question about supporting indigenous African companies? You know, Just like the Asian countries were supported in the 70s, 60s and 70s, Southeast Asia, and Malaysia, Thailand, US and other Western countries built and supported um, R&D centers, supply chains. Everybody's focused on securing our raw materials, whether it's the Chinese, Americans, whoever, Switzerland. So, I, 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 I'll, I'll be very interested. And yes, there's human rights abuses, we, we, we all know that, but I think if you can support the growth on the content from an economic development lens and give the same type of partnership and collaboration that Southeast Asia got back in the 60s, 70s, Africa, you know, we have our own issues with uh, governance, our leaders have whatever, but I just wanna get your thoughts on that. And I guess, Eric, that's- Thank you, you very you much thank you who would like to feel that
4: i have a thought on that um so i think it's um a great point of like the need to refocus the conversation as well i mean i'm here on this panel as a china focused person i think that's really a sign of where the conversation is at in washington in a lot of ways of what brings interest to this is coming through often a very security very china focused lens Um, and so in order to kind of if I can ideally use that as an entry point to then broaden the conversation to looking at more of the local impact and so on. I think you see this at a rhetorical level in some ways in um, some government policy, but I don't know if uh, Eric has more thoughts on how that's actually.
3: Yeah, I mean, let's let's be very clear. In the past 20 years, the Chinese have lent or invested $153 billion, mostly in infrastructure. And a lot of that is in power infrastructure, rail infrastructure, and a lot of that was for the growth and development that was African-led, by the way. That was not Chinese-led. The Standard Gauge Railway was a Kenyan project. When we look at the power plants and whatnot, these are African-led. So I think if you look into a lot of the China-Africa development history over the past 20 years, you will find what you're looking for. Uh, It's not in a security context. Uh, it is oftentimes, again, we look at the roads, the rails, all these different things. The light rail in Ethiopia, the, the blue line in Nigeria. These are, these are African infrastructure issues. In terms of moving up the value chain, what you talked about, the big problem is power. In order to process minerals, requires an extraordinary amount of electricity and power. And that's been the problem in Zimbabwe, and now the problem in Namibia is they don't have the power supplies to process that, that, that resource. So investing in electrification and power generation is going to be the key to going to the next level to do exactly what you're talking about. And the question is, will the US or others do that? Where will the capital come from to make that investment?
0: Um, so yes, that was what I was trying to say in my presentation. So I'm sorry if I missed the point. I mean, the future of the workforce is in Africa, right? So it's investing in infrastructure and power, but it's also investing in expertise and education and making sure that, that girls go to school and that we're sort of investing in the in the people, right? And And in those investments, having those investments driven by what Uh, African communities are asking for and recognize as their points of resilience, but also where they see risks, right? And making those investments so that you can uh, address those risks and build up their resiliencies. And so I think um, this is where the US has an opportunity to leverage its international development space and to leverage its diplomatic relationships and and to put sort of Um, build those relationships on the ground so that they can be, uh, that those investments can be shaped by those relationships and by those conversations. Um, I think, you know, getting to the point about the value-added processing, I mean, it is advanced technologies, it's specialized expertise, it's incredible amounts of financing that's needed, and it's a really long timeline, too, for a lot of these projects. So pairing that with these investments at the community level I think would help to ensure that that sort of long-term vision is is achieved and realized.
2: Good, uh, thank you. Uh, we've got a question that, that's come in and it's very much related to, to the issue of value added and that is increasingly we're seeing some African countries impose, or at least a few, export bans. So we've seen that with Zimbabwe on, on lithium and Namibia likewise. Uh, How does that dynamic play out? And and I know, Eric, we've spoken about you had mentioned that forcing value addition at the local level may actually not benefit African nations in the way that we think. It it may not have broad economic impacts in terms of employment and investment. So if you could briefly address
3: that. The most advanced example of the export bans and the local processing is Indonesia right now on the nickel ban. And what we are finding in Indonesia is that the Chinese now are actually moving to dominate the processing of the nickel and most of the value is actually floating up to the Chinese even in the processing. So processing is not a magic bullet or a silver bullet for adding value to the local economy. And the Indonesians by the way are also being very lax on their labor enforcement and their environmental governance. So again, these export bans, they sound good, they're good for politics, they're good for domestic politics. The assumption is you're going to capture more value locally, Uh, but if foreign actors come in to dominate the supply chain and dominate the processing, Uh, and then the logistics, then a lot of that value isn't captured by local stakeholders, it's captured by the Chinese and others. So Namibia is the newest in terms of imposing an export ban. Zimbabwe is struggling with theirs. Zimbabwe got screwed because they were counting on the Tsenghua power plant, a coal power plant financed by ICBC for about $3 billion. Xi Jinping went to the UN two years ago and said, we're not financing coal anymore. So that's what undermines Zimbabwe's ability to process locally for all these new lithium mines. Uh, so again, we have a, a lot of moving parts here between governance, regulation, in terms of who can own the processing, the environmental and the labor part, and then of course, this, this infrastructure is going to be key to it. So I, I'm not sure that a lot of African countries are ready for it in terms of the infrastructure capacity to impose the export bans, but I see where the motivation is. Right. I think we have a question up here. Uh, hi there, my name is Lily Pike. Um, I'm a China reporter with The Messenger, and so my question will be China-focused. Um, so I think my understanding of the US concern is that Chinese investment in these mines will give Chinese companies an advantage in the energy transition upstream, whether it be electric vehicles or batteries. And then there's the separate concern that uh, Chinese control of supply chains could be weaponized and threaten US national security. I'm curious if you think either of those two concerns uh, are actually valid, and if you've seen examples um, in which those two uh, scenarios have actually played out on the ground so far. That's
4: a good question. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I think that is really kind of the question behind all of this is, you know, what is the actual risk of these types of supply chains being weaponized? Um, and you know, one thing that came out of our project that we completed is um, when you're looking at you know, China's control over supply chains or China's international projects, um, it's very feasible and in some cases it's very clear to see what are the conduits of influence um, that China has over these different companies um, or what are the ways that China might be able to uh, utilize these when push comes to shove. Um, but it's less hard to parse out, of course, you know, what is the intention behind that. Um, I would say there's so, you know, there was a statement I saw from a um, U.S. official um, quoted in the Economist saying that the uh, intention of all of this was to ensure that China does not become an OPEC of one um, in the critical mineral space. Um, which you know, it says more about what the capabilities that they that the U.S. official would, was worried about more so than. Exactly, like what scenarios this might be used in. Um, At the end of the day, however, like as Eric um, mentioned, there's a lot of complexity in these supply chains. uh, And so, you know, as we're looking at what is the actual risk here and where could China, you know, turn off the taps in some theoretical uh, scenario where we're at a more intense point of conflict, um, you know, it's important to look at get into the detail of how would that actually happen when we have such a complex supply chain um, and which of the supply chains should we actually be worried about. Um, and of course, nobody wants us to move towards a conflict, but there are people in the U.S. government who their job is to think about what are those potential risks and proof against that.
2: Great, I think up here.
4: Hi, thank you first of all for having this fabulous panel. Um, You're all wonderful, it's very interesting. So I have a couple somewhat related questions. The first is you're talking about the U.S. wanting to go into Africa, step up our game. Uh, And I was wondering what is the U.S. doing in the Congo specifically, both the government side and then also companies? Uh, and then the other question is, a couple of you mentioned how important it is for the U.S. and China to be working together in addressing so many issues, but particularly with, here with the Africa focus. Do you have any concrete suggestions of areas in which that would be possible, given the current you know, political context, um, or how we might approach it and start building toward uh, developing that kind of cooperation? Because I think we could be very complimentary and, as well as cooperative in so many areas in, in Africa. And
3: what do you think Tucker Carlson would say if there's a, uh, a, a, a cooperation with the Chinese or, or Mike McCall on the house on the hill or let's go to Fox News, Jesse Waters in prime time. It's not possible. Any cooperation is seen as appeasement by a lot of people in this town and the Chinese are rightfully skeptical. However, there is a model for cooperation out there and it's the French. The French have five development projects worth $1.7 billion that they're building with the Chinese in Africa. They jointly built the Lekki port. They're working together on the East Africa crude oil pipeline, so the French are really pioneering a way where development, again, some of it carbon-based and not politically correct development, but nonetheless, there is a model for a Western country to work with the Chinese on development and economic issues like ports and things like that. In terms of what the Americans are doing in the Congo, uh, in the mining sector, nothing, zero. There's not one single mining company from the United States that's active in the Congo today. Freeport McMoran was the last one. Uh, what they are therefore, is a major diplomatic, an enormous amount of aid money flows through the Congo. It's a major diplomatic front. It's a major point of great power competition with the Chinese and others. So there's a very active American diplomatic, military security and aid presence in the DRC, but not in the mining sector.
2: Okay, well, uh, I'd like to finish up and and focus on US policy. We've spoken to 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 some extent, but if you had, as we've discussed, the administration's making a a large commitment to critical minerals in Africa. We've got the expansion of the Development Finance Corporation. We have the PGII initiative, uh, the infrastructure. We have a mineral security partnership. We have a memorandum of understanding with with Zimbabwe, um, uh, Zambia, and DRC. If we could just go down the line here, and we only have a, a minute, so I'm going to limit everyone to to one minute response. If you had a recommendation uh, to policymakers, how can we do better, or what what are we doing well uh, in terms of trying to uh, trying to help Africans develop their critical minerals in a way that that works for Africans, works for development, does not exacerbate conflict? Lauren, you, you laid out, it, it's a pretty troubling past, and, and really I think we have to be realistic and recognize that this is a, a steep climb, but I think most people in Washington would recognize China's gonna be there, France is gonna be there, Turkey's gonna be there, every other country in the world is going to be in Africa, so we, we might as well be in the game. So uh, again, one minute, uh, uh, we're gonna get in the game, what would your recommendation be to, to best play that game? Brianna? Um.
4: I think to go in with a very clear eyed look of what are our goals and what are the uh, different contexts that we might be entering. So, you know, what are the minerals that we absolutely need to get involved with, um, if that's like, from a perspective of US strategy, and what are the different players already involved? And so, just treating it overall as the very specified complex situation that it is in different countries and in different industries um, and forming strategy from that place up instead of uh, sometimes from looking at all of these things under the same
3: category tom everything you listed is aspirational what we need are wins on the board and you need to show results and you need to actually deliver and this goes to your point which is we need to show up we need to develop an expertise in Africa and African issues. We need people on the ground. We need young people to go there. We need people to learn the languages, the cultures, and to respect the history. Um, but the proof points are what people are gonna judge us on. And if we only have aspirations and that MOU doesn't come through or PGI doesn't follow through, which has been our past 20, 30 years in Africa, then no one's gonna believe us.
0: Uh, yeah, I would, mean, by, yes, absolutely. Um, Following on that, we have a recent policy brief that we published on US governance on critical minerals, and two of the points that came out of that was the need for the US to partner meaningfully and in the long term with partner countries on creating that value added and allowing that, not allowing, that's the wrong word, enabling some of that value added to to be a a source of that partnership um, with producing countries. The other point is uh, to invest in livelihood diversification. so that communities as the, I think one of the we didn't get into like sort of the, the ups and downs of the market and what that can mean for communities, but investing in communities and um, sort of broader economic development so that as the market goes up and down, the, the communities where a lot of these minerals are sourced aren't sort of left behind.
2: Well, I wanna thank all three of you for, for an excellent uh, presentations, and I wanna thank the audience on, on behalf of USIP for, for tuning in. I think we could go on and on. Uh, uh, this is such a rich topic and, and so, so important, uh, important to the United States, important to African development. I think we've succeeded, hopefully, in, in touching on some of the complexities and, and nuances of, of what we have ahead of us. And uh, again, thank you. And, and this is a continuing dialogue. It, it's uh, quite popular here in Washington. And uh, hopefully we've, we've shed some light on, on some of these key issues. So again, thank you very much.